you know, when you when you're injured and you're by yourself, there's really nobody except you. Um, you know, in the, usually you know, most most people rehab by themselves. Um, and so when you're in there, it's, it's you and, and, the, and the, to this day, some of my, my best friends are the, are the guys from that training staff because it was just us. Um, the, the thing about sports is, is it continues to go on. I got hurt, but there was a game the next Saturday. They didn't they didn't stop. They stopped the game just long enough to get the ambulance out there and roll me off when I you know dislocated my hip. Um, but the game continues to go on. And so, you know, mentally to know that the game can go on without you. It, it's a very surreal, humbling experience because you know, no matter how good you are, the game's going to continue to go on without you. And so that's one of those things that kind of drives you um, to, to get to be a, be a part of again when you're doing rehab. This is Ramon Flanagan, Director of External Affairs for the SME Football Program and former SME football player. You're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Head and Tails podcast. Today I'm excited to bring you Ramon Flanagan, who recently became the director of former player relations at his old stomping grounds of the Southern Methodist University football program. Uh, Ramon played quarterback at SMU and was a two-time team captain and is the only player in program history to pass for more than 5,500 yards and rush for at least 1,500 yards in their career. Uh, Ramon had a, his hand in uh, SMU's only winning season since the, since the death penalty uh, until that streak was again ended in 2009. Uh, Ramon also played professionally for the Hamburg Blue Devils before moving on to an extensive coaching career. And uh, before coming back to SMU, Ramon served as head football coach at Lincoln University. So, Ramon, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast and you know talk about some of your injuries and some of the adversity that your team uh, overcame uh, at SMU. Um, so can you start off by just telling us a little bit about what went into your decision to play at SMU um, after the whole death penalty situation? Yeah, Kevin, first of all, thank you for having me. I've, I've looked forward to this. I'm super excited about being a part of the podcast. Uh, you know, my, my decision was pretty pretty easy. Uh, I wasn't very highly recruited coming out of high school. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty well-known story in my hometown. I uh, played on a football team that had two all-state running backs, and so I spent a lot of time handing the ball off. Okay. Um, my decision was very easy because I didn't have a lot of choices, and SMU was a school that, you know, I, I grew up watching, uh, and their heyday was, was the time that I grew up and, and started falling in love with football, and they were in the Southwest Conference still at the time, and so I had an opportunity to play Southwest Conference football, and uh, you know, two hours away from my hometown, so it was literally a dream come true. So the death penalty actually helped me because, um, you know, if SMU was still rocking and rolling like they were in the in the, in the early to mid '80s, um, I probably wouldn't have been on their radar. So everything kind of worked out in my favor as far as that that's concerned. Okay, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, I guess if you have two really good running backs, I guess you're not. There's no need to throw the ball that much. A little, a little too risky. Um, can you just briefly explain to the listeners that might not know what the death penalty is or haven't watched the whole Pony Express uh, 30 for 30 that was pretty popular? Well, what happened during that time in the early 80s, there were, there were a lot of uh, schools, SMU being one, that, that, that were doing things outside the NCAA regula- regulations and, and rules. Um, SMU got caught um, cheating, basically, paying, paying players to, to, to come to play at SMU. 
and they didn't only get get caught once or twice. And it was a, it was actually the third or fourth time they had gotten caught. And so the NCA trying to make a statement, which they did. Um, it's never happened again. They 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 gave SMU the death penalty, which which meant they shut the entire football program down for one year. And SMU came in in year two and, and self imposed the second year. So SMU was without football for two years. And that death penalty is something that, you know, basically scared all the other schools into, you know, being a little bit more compliant as far as the NCAA was concerned because they saw the the, the, the terrible things that had happened for SMU's football program going forward after that happened. Right. And I remember them kind of talking about that again with the whole Penn State scandal that went on with the Jerry Sandusky um, stuff. But I guess obviously that didn't didn't happen uh, over at Penn State. So when you came to the program, you know, w- what was it like, I guess, like, you know, always being the underdog? Well, for me, I kind of came in a transition period, which kind of helped me in my career, and it really helped me after my career was over, um, looking back on it. The first couple of seasons after the death penalty were very, very, very tough. You had a bunch of bunch of young men that were basically walk-ons playing against you know, some of the, at the time, some of the best best players in the country. You know, you had Andre Ware was the quarterback at at, uh, at Houston. You know, Texas, Texas A&M, Texas Tech, Baylor, they were all very, very good teams. And so the football program was very, very, very down. When I got here, it was at the time where, you know, we had taken some early, early punishment and we were just starting to come back, um, turn the corner a little bit to start being a little bit more competitive. And so it was still tough. We were still underdogs, but it, it wasn't nearly as bad as it, as it was when the death penalty, you know, the teams that just they came right after the death penalty. And so we were able to compete, um, you know, quite a few weekends or a couple weekends. You know, we played Texas or, you know, UCLA, North Carolina, some teams like that out of the conference. And we were severely overmatched. But, um, you know, as I look back over my career, there weren't a whole lot of times that we just weren't competitive at all. Um, you know, and, and we, we actually tied Texas A&M. In 1994, and they were in the top top 15 in the country, and had a you know 20 some odd game conference winning streak at the time. And so on certain Saturdays, we could compete literally with anybody in the country. But over the course of our careers, we were usually outmatched, outgunned. So what do you think it was that got, that kept you guys in those games with those teams that you said were you were, you were outmatched by them? Well, the thing that the coaches staff the coaching staff did early on. Um, Coach Forrest Gregg and Tom Rossi were the first two head coaches following the death penalty. They recruited young men to come to SMU that were, first of all, you know, very, very, very intelligent um, because at that time, SMU um, imposed stricter admission standards for the uh, football players and other other teams in the NCAA did. And what that did is it, it allowed us to be a little more complex on offense and defense because we had, a, a, you know, super, super, super smart guys. And a lot of those guys are going to be very successful after their playing careers. And the other thing is that they recruited guys that were resilient. They were tough. I mean, because you knew what you were getting into when you came to school here. And so there was a, there was a level of toughness that, you know, Forrest Gregg, um, Vince Lombardi said was one of the best players he ever coached in his entire career. Starting with coach Gregg, that, that level of toughness trickled down, you know, it permeated throughout the entire building because it started at the top. Coach Greg was a head coach. I never played for him, but when I when I was a player, he was the athletic director. And that t- that toughness that he instilled in those earlier teams resonated throughout the building for, for years after he, he was a head coach. And I think it was just the toughness. Okay. And this is a question I usually save to the end of the podcast for my guests, but since we've we just, you know, started talking about the toughness idea, you know, what it what was the definition of toughness 
you know, in that program that you played in, um, you know, under those coaches and maybe how has that definition changed for you today or maybe it's the same? Well, for me, it's the same. Um, you know, li- looking back on it, our, our toughness was every Saturday you knew getting off the bus that the odds of you winning weren't in your favor. And to be able to still go out and perform at, at the highest um, level of, of, that you were capable of, um, regardless of the outcome. And, and a lot of times we knew the outcome before the game started. And to go out there and put all that aside and still do your job, um, play with a competitive spirit and, and play to win the game, even though the odds were probably not stacking in favor, you know, that that's my definition of toughness. And then, of course, it trickled down into the physical part. Um, you know, you, you knew you were going to get hit. Um, you knew, you know, football game is a game for tough guys and, and just getting up. You know, me personally, I just wanted to get up. You know, I, you know, I, I was sacked over 53 times in my career and I just wanted to always just get up. That that was my 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 definition of toughness was just getting up. And, and it's the same way today. You know, I talk to, you know, my children, you know, my family, people I mentor about just getting up. You know, Rocky, the Rocky movies were, were, were my favorite movies growing up, you know, especially through college and answering the bell. You know, that, that's toughness. And that permeates not just through athletics, but, you know, through people's everyday life because life sucks. You know, it, it's some it, everybody's everybody has point time in their life where life sucks and you just got to answer the bell. To me, that's toughness. I love it. That's that's a great definition. And before we get into some of the life after ball uh, program that you're uh, developing at Southern Methodist University, I'd like to talk about some of the injuries that you sustained and overcame throughout your career. And I know you had some some serious injuries. So can you take us through um, both of your medical red shirts that you you had while while playing quarterback at SMU? Yes, sir. I, I had two medical red shirts. The first one was my true freshman year. Um, you know, looking back on my career, it was everything was kind of unique. I was a 17-year-old freshman, um, which most guys are still in college when they're 17 years old. And I played two weeks of my freshman year as a 17-year-old, you know, freshman quarterback. And so my, I probably was not physically ready for for the Division One, um, you know, things that come from being a Division One quarterback. So the second game of, of my my freshman year, I tore ligaments in my thumb, and and that that was the first time I was ever actually injured to any magnitude in my entire life of any sport that I played. And so the, the, the emotional and mental aspects of not being able to compete and not be able to contribute to the team were probably a lot more severe than the actual injury itself, because the injury itself, you know, after the initial, you know, you, you, you've hurt yourself, you know, it wasn't a day-to-day painful thing. Um, you know, it was the first time I had a cast that was kind of different. The second one was, was totally different. And it was, it was life-changing. I dislocated my hip on the first play of the season of 1995. So the season 1994, I led the Southwest Conference in total offense, and I was 13th, 13th in the country in total offense. And our team was on a, our program was on a, on an upkick. Um, we had a quarterback, you know, myself that was coming back, had a lot of preseason accolades. Um, we we added some depth to our roster recruiting. So it was it was the year that everybody kind of tabbed for SMU to break out of, you know, the post death penalty slumps that we had been in. And I go out and put in a great. Um, summer of work, and then I go and I get hurt on the first play of the season, and it was a devastating injury, a, a, dis, a hip dislocation, and it changed not just the program for that year and a couple years going forward, but it changed my my game. I mean, I went from running a 4-3-7 um, in 1994, and I never, ever got close to that again outside of driving in a car that fast. <laughs> so it, it, it changed the way I played, the way that I viewed the game, and to be out for, for an entire season, you know, 
when it was supposed to be our year was very, very tough for me, especially emotionally and psychologically more so than physically. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that, that's really tough. And, you know, a big, one of the main topics I cover on the podcast is just, you know, guys and girls, you know, overcoming injuries and obstacles. So you said when you hurt your thumb, that was the first time that you were ever really injured and the, the mental side was the hardest part for you. So like, how did you hurt your thumb? Um, number one. And then like, what exactly like were those emotions? Was it because you couldn't, you, you had to watch your friends play, you know, in, in your place or, you know, what, what, what led to those uh, mental struggles? Well, m- mine was, it, it was, it was a couple of, it was trifold, I guess. Um, the, the actual injury, I hit, hit my thumb on, on a defender's helmet and, and as bad about as I threw an 80 yard touchdown pass at the time was one of the longest touchdown pass in school history. <laughs> and so you're literally on both ends of the spectrum. I mean, you come in as a true freshman, it's the second game you've ever played. Um, and you throw a touchdown pass and, you know, your hand doesn't feel right. And so I hit my hand on a, on a helmet, tore ligaments in, in, in there. And so that that injury, you know, in high school, like I said before, I, I wasn't exactly your prototypical high school, you know, stud quarterback, all-star, big man on campus. And I came to college and, and became that in two weeks. You know, you're a freshman, female, you know, freshman guy playing um, Division One football, you, you rocket up the, the depth chart to where you're actually playing and to have all of that and then get it taken away so quickly. A lot of guys had already been that guy for a long time in their life. And I'd done it for, for two weeks and I kind of, kind of liked it. I liked it a lot. Right. <laughs> so to have that taken away, was just different. I was not invested enough in the team to understand, you know, I, I'm missing. It was the first time I, I wasn't competing, but it, it, I wasn't, you know, I, I was new to the team. So it's not like it was my team and, you know, I'd worked with these guys for years. The second injury, when I dislocated my hip um, on the first play of the season, you know, that one was that one was tougher because because I I'd, I'd worked and sweated with those guys for you know two years prior, and also the the all the optimism that was going into the season, you know, that was kind of on my shoulders, and to have it taken away, you know, who gets hurt on the first play of, of a season? I mean, you you don't you know nobody even writes that in a movie. And so they, they were two two different injuries, and they affected me different ways, um, emotionally for different reasons. Right. So how did you deal, or how did you cope with the mental struggles from uh, the dislocated hip injury? Like, did you do anything on the side to like kind of distract you, or did you still stay as involved with the team as you could? Like, um, how did you manage, you know, the the negative feelings that you were you were having, or try to get rid of those feelings? Honestly, that that's one, Kevin. That's one of the things that you know, football and the science of football and sport, it's it's evolved so much. You know, people nowadays they have, they have mechanisms to deal with it. They understand the psychological, you know, you know, ramifications of an injury. I don't think we did as much in the early '90s, and so a lot of stuff was was self medicating. You know, I, I didn't do a lot of things with the team. Um, both of my rehabs were, you know, they were unique injuries, um, the hip, especially, you know, that, that, that year there were three hip, hip dislocations in the entire, um, division one college football. And so the rehab was new. It's not something that, you know, the training staff dealt with on a year in a year out basis. Um, and so I did a lot of things on my own and probably, probably purposefully because it was tougher being around the team than it was, um, being with the team. I still traveled, you know, I was, I was a captain, so I traveled with the team. You know, I came to practice all the time, but I, I, I wasn't around as much, um, probably looking back as I should have been um, as a team captain. But it, it, it was it was very tough to be around those guys. You know, that was the only game we won the whole season. 
Uh, we won the first game of the season that I played in, and we, we lost a lot, the last 10. And so it was very tough to watch my teammates um, go to go to Madison, Wisconsin, and you know go to Norman, Oklahoma, and, and play those kind of teams um, without their leader and knowing that that I, you know, not, not purposely, but had let the team down because I wasn't able to compete with them. Okay, so based off of you know your own experiences and kind of like dealing with it yourself because the resources weren't really there when you were playing, you know, what advice do you have for players today, maybe on the SMU team or guys that you've coached in the past, um, when they suffer a season-ending or possibly career-ending injury? Well, the, the biggest thing is stay connected with, with your support system. You know, I, I had an awesome and still do have an awesome um, support system. You know, my mother and father have been together for over 50 years now. You know, so I, I was, we, we were the Huxables before the Huxables were the Huxables. <laughs> um, I have a sister that didn't care whether I was a starting quarterback or – if I if I set the bench, she was the same all the time. And so those those constants in my life, you know, really really helped. And so I always always urge young people, men and women, to 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 go back to the you know who loved you before before you were a soccer star or a football star, because those are people that usually have your best interest at heart. You know, fans are exactly that; they're fanatical. And so th- those those people will come and go. But if you have a good support system that helps you through tough times, and also you know, on the converse side. It helps you balance out the good, time, good, good, good times uh, as far as keeping you well balanced. Right, so you don't get too high on yourself when you're doing great. <laughs> of course, it's impossible. If you ever met my sister, it's impossible for me to be too high on myself. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, how did your hip injury actually happen? Like, what was the mechanism of injury for that one? Well, it, it was the first play of the season, and when we get through this podcast, I'll send you. I'll send you the actual video so you can see yourself. Okay. It's just, Old-fashioned old torque, um, and I still remember the guy's name was Junior Salee. Played for the Jets for about seven or eight years. It was the first play of the season. He came through, and I was I was planted, and he just twisted me, you know, literally like a corkscrew into the ground, and the hip pop, you know, hip hip popped out of socket. What kind of field surface were you guys playing on? I'm just curious. Natural grass, and yeah. it, it was one. You know, we we played in the Cotton Bowl um, the 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 end of my career, and at the time the the uh, major league soccer team was playing at the Cotton Bowl. So it was, it was literally the best surface. I mean, it was the same surface Texas, Oklahoma played on. And, I, and I, I've, I've looked at every, every you know, way of how this can happen. And certain times you just understand that, that the Lord had that in his plan. And undoubtedly that was because it, it, you know, it, it wasn't a service issue. Right. Um, so I guess you said that you never really quite got back to – you know, you say you're running a four three seven forty uh, before that injury, but you never really quite got back. Um, did you have to change your style of of play afterwards, or? Well, I didn't change my style of play. I was still I was still elusive and fast for a quarterback. I just wasn't the, the threat that I was before, and so my style didn't change. My effectiveness did. You know, my 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 five to ten yard runs that used to be. 30 or 40 yard runs, you know, they, they, they was just, it was just a different, it was a different burst. It was a different um, dynamic. Um, you know, like when I watch, watch me early in my career and then watch late in my career, it was just a whole different, it was a, it was a different field. And at the time, you know, we were playing in the Southwest Conference. So every week we were playing a team, a Texas or a Texas Tech or an A&M that you, you know, you were playing against, you know, future first round draft picks. And so you could tell, the difference in in, in, in in my speed, my acceleration, my burst, because I wasn't able to do things I was able to do, you know, prior to the injury. Right. Did you ever get frustrated by that? 
Um, no, I didn't. And, and this is the reason why I guess I probably should have. But I, I never got frustrated because I, I was just happy to be playing again. Um, you know, when you wake up, you know, you get hurt the first play of the game. They take you to the hospital. They, they, they put you out so they can reduce your, you know, reduce your head, put it back in socket. When you wake up, you know, when I woke up, I was listening to the, to the rest of the game on, on, on the radio. And so at that time, you're thinking my career is over. I'll never get to play again. You know, there, there'll be some hot freshman that'll come in on, you know. So once I got back and was a starting quarterback, became a captain again, I was so happy and, and, and felt blessed just to be playing again. I never felt, you know, the frustration. You know, as I get older and I look back on it, I'll, I think, you know, from time to time, what would have happened had I been able to continue to play at, at the level that I was b- before? But, you know, that, that that's that's – there's there's nothing self-serving about that, so I usually I usually you know get off of that pretty quickly. Right, but I think it's interesting point that you made that it it didn't frustrate you at the time just because you kind of showed gratitude just for the opportunity to be able to play again. And no. I think maybe if other people who are injured that you know focus on that rather than what could have been should have been you know it might be a more enjoyable experience. You're exactly right, and it goes in a bunch of different facets of life. Because whenever, and I and I, I do this to today, um, whenever whenever you're down about something, you know, there are people around you that usually have it a little bit worse than you do, and it's not to make light of their their situation. But sometimes you can be blessed for what you do have, as opposed to, you know, having frustration or regret about what you may may not have at that time. Right. Yeah, it's a great a uh, great point. So. You said that you had the video. Is that like on YouTube? Like, is that something I could share with uh, the audience if they want to take a look at it? Well, what happened is one of my buddies, who's my best friend in the world, he he sent it to me. It was part of the co- one of our coaches shows. Okay. And so I, I can I can send it to you. You can probably be um, you can do whatever you want to with it. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to see if I could uh, throw that up there so people can can see the play, uh, if that's okay with you. Yes. As long as long as I don't get hit again. <laughs> okay. You don't feel the pain. Yeah. That's like a crazy injury. That's like the Bo Jackson injury, right? And it it was shortly after he had his injury. And so my my training the training staff that I had um, at the time, which were awesome, when you when you dislocate hit your hip, there's certain you you can't rush it. It's not like when you when you tear tear your ACL and you can do a whole bunch of knee extensions. And the more you do, the better. This one you've got to take it in stages. And so there was a time where I wouldn't stay on my crutches and wouldn't do what I was supposed to do. And they would put they would put a Bo Jackson um, picture in my locker because because if, 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 you, if you do too much, the fluid, too much fluid gets into the joint and you can lose your hip. And so that that was that was on the forefront of, of my mind, you know, quite often during that time. So do you remember like the frustrations of that point in time, like, you know, going from being an athlete um you know, Division One college athlete to, you know, at, when you're trying to rehab your hip, you couldn't really do anything. So, like, how did you, what did you do for exercise or, did, like, a, did you find a new hobby or anything? Well, no, we did a lot, and I, I was a nerd in college, so it, it my my number one hobby was playing video games. So it didn't it didn't bother me one bit for for what I did most, which was be a super nerd and play video <laughs> games. Which actually kind of helped because it gave me something to do that I wasn't running around. Okay. Um, the, the rehab was unique. Um, you know, we did a lot of things. You know, in the pool, 
um, a, a lot of things to take some stress off of it. And, and you know, the trainer here was Cash Birdwell, who's in, in the Hall of Fame, the training training Hall of Fame. Um, and then and then we had he reached out to the Dallas Cowboys for different reasons, you know, different things. But I, I, I really all I did was study and, and do what I was supposed to do because playing football was super important to me, probably too much so um, because I, because I had just started to get a taste of being really, you know, like I was never really good in junior high, high school. I was never really good. And so I was I was just starting to have fun being good at this game and wanted, wanted some more of it. Right. That's awesome. Uh, so I'm very impressed by the fact that you're a two-time team captain. Um, so what qualities does a player need to have, do you think, to, to be a two-time team captain? Like what made your coaches and your teammates kind of – what did they see in you that made them want you to be their captain for two years in a row? Well, Kevin, you know what? I really can't answer that. I can only only assume these things because this is what I try to do every day. Right. I should Every day on time. Um, I, I was late for one workout my entire career here, and that's because they had a back gate that I used to sneak into so I could drive drive close to the facility was locked. But I was always on time. I was where I was supposed to be. I always worked my tail off, and because I, I wasn't a very vocal leader, um, you know, I didn't yell and scream at guys. I led by example, or I tried to, and then I tried to, to take accountability for my actions. So. If things didn't go well I, 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 in the media, you know, in the locker room, I always, always tried to, you know, take the blame because as a quarterback, you usually get more credit for, you know, things that you really didn't have anything to do with. And you usually get more blame than, than, than you deserve. And I tried to take as much off of that off of my teammates as I could. And I think they recognized that. And the other thing is just, you know, I, th- I think they respected my toughness. I mean, they knew every Saturday I was going and I didn't always play well and I always always make sure I qualify that statement. I don't always play well, but I always played as, as hard as I could. And I think, you know, my teammates and my coaches respected um, that, that part of me. And then, you know, as I've gotten older, that's what, that's what they've all, overwhelmingly told me that, that, that one of the things they liked about me was that I always, you know, to go back, answered the bell. And, and I, cause I, I took some beatings. Yeah. I love that. And, and just like you said before, like, even when you, you know, you weren't running the four three seven again, like you're still going a hundred percent. So you're giving it all that you have, even if it wasn't as much as you had before. So that's, that's great. Um, so how do you think that those qualities served you while you were injured, uh, during your, your football career? Um, probably just the resiliency part, because, you know, when you, when you're injured and you're by yourself, there's really nobody except you, um, you know, and usually, you know, most, most people rehab by themselves. Um, and so when you're in there, it's, it's you and, and, the, and the, to this day, some of my, my best friends are the, are the guys from that training staff because it was just us. Um, the, the thing about sports is, is it continues to go on. I got hurt, but there was a game the next Saturday. They didn't, they didn't stop. They stopped the game just long enough to get the ambulance out there and roll me off when I, you know, dislocated my hip. Um, but the game continues to go on. And so, you know, mentally to know that the game can go on without you, it, it, it's a very surreal, humbling experience because, you know, no matter how good you are, the game's going to continue to go on without you. And so that's one of those things that kind of drives you um, to, to get to be a, be a part of again when you're doing rehab. I like that. Yeah, it's a good incentive um, to, to get back. So, what were some of your great – well, so then you had a, a professional career after SMU. Um, what was it like – that was in Germany, right? 
was in Hamburg, Germany. Um, and, and for me, it was, it was perfect um, because a lot of guys, football is different than a lot of sports. You know, basketball, you can join a pickup league and play in the Y. And, you know, you can still get a little bit of that out. Football, once it's over, it, it, it's over. You know, going playing touch football in the park with your buddies is not the same as going down there and, and crossing the white line. And so for me, it, it helped get it out of my system. Um, you know, the competition was good. I met a lot of good friends. Um, you know, our team was good. You know, they actually paid you to play football, and it helped bridge that gap to, to put some closure on my career. Um, the last game of my senior year here, here at SMU, I didn't know it was going to be the last game because if we had won that game, we'd have played in a bowl game. And so a lot of times, you know, there are certain parts of your career where you know it's the last game and you can kind of mentally prepare. I've, I didn't prepare for that to be the last game when we played TCU in, in 1997. And so for me, it helped close, close that chapter of my life so I could move on. Because I've known guys that, that have chased dreams and, and kept playing for years and years and years after they shouldn't have. And I never wanted to be that person. So you, you say you know people that, that do that. Like, do you, have you talked to them to see, like, what they're chasing or, like, what they're trying? Like, what kind of closure are they seeking out? Well, what happens here, because there, there's some guys that, that, are, that just graduated here that I try to mentor – it's it's when you, when you're an elite athlete, sometimes in your mind, reality isn't reality. And so, if, if for example, we have a couple young men here that didn't get drafted, um, and they didn't get invited to training camps um, this this past year. Well, realistically, that's telling you that for whatever reason, the NFL didn't think your skill set fit well enough to be invited in the camp. Okay, so the reality of that changing in a year. It doesn't in our, in our mind. We can go and we can work harder and and, and make them change their minds. And but it, it, the reality is that that doesn't happen very often. You'll see one or two stories every every once in a while about a guy who you know kept trying and you know a Kurt Warner type story. You know, guys bagging groceries or whatever, and then you know gets the lucky break. But that doesn't happen enough to justify you know not, not starting your your life after after football, which that's what we're talking about life after ball. Yep. It's done because because there's nobody that'll that'll tell you, hey man, it's over. You've got to make that until you until you tell yourself that and, and come to grips with it. You're gonna you, you, you'll you'll never you never really sleep at night. That, that's a great way to put it. Um, so what were some? Of, I mean, you said that you had some good closure to your career, but did you struggle at all in your transition life after football? Um, I didn't, and this is the reason why, Kevin. That's that's a good question. Um, I, I never thought I was going to stop. So I played in Germany and I came back and I was working out and I was working out at North Texas, the University of North Texas, which is where um, the offense coordinator that, that I played for here at SMU um, as a senior was the head coach, Daryl Dickey. And so I'm working out, getting ready to go back to Germany for another season and continue playing. And, you know, you never know. You can go to the CFL, you can go to the NFL from there. Just keep, keep, keep putting out tape is what I wanted to do um, and keep getting to play the game that you love. Well, he had a position, a full-time position, come open on his staff and asked me if I wanted to coach. And so I, you know, made a rational decision. I can keep, you know, flying, you know, halfway across the world and playing in front of people that I don't know for not very much money or start a coaching career as a 24-year-old full-time assistant, you know, in Division One football. And so I made, a, you know, a calculated decision on what was best for me in the long run. And, and it, it worked out for me. And I, I've never regretted that decision, not one, not one, not one ounce. Yeah. So at at that time, like early on in your coaching career, you know, when you were out there coaching as opposed to playing, were you? Did you ever like question 
it like oh like I wish like you know Saturday morning rolls around and the team starts warming up for the game and going through you know the walkthrough you know did you ever get that itch and like kind of you know like wish that it wasn't in your face or did you you just love football and love being around it that that just kind of helped you in your transition yeah but I'm 43 years old I don't think that feeling ever leaves and that I mean I, I, I need some help with that um <laughs> That that feel that feeling still hasn't hasn't left. It's gotten easier to manage the older you get. You know, when you're young, you can still think, you know, shit, I can still do that, do that, and you probably still can. You know, when you're young, when you get to be, you know, I'm 43 years old. I mean, you know that you cannot do that. And so the other thing that helps is guys that I played with and against are not in the NFL anymore. So you're not turning on Sundays and seeing guys that are still playing for the most part. There's still one or two. Josh McCown. Is still playing quarterback, and I, I, I recruited him here to SMU. Um, but once those guys got out of the league, you know, Zach Thomas, you know, Ray Mickens, Aaron, when those guys got out of the NFL and you're not watching them every every Saturday, um, it, it, that, I mean, every Sunday on TV, that also helped because, you know, shoot, man, that guy, that guy's still doing it. I could probably still make a comeback and all that stuff, which, again, none of those are good thoughts when you're getting older. Yeah, I have a similar experience to that too because like I worked for the Rutgers football team in equipment uh, when I was an undergrad, and that kind of like was good and bad because like Saturday rolled around, I'm like, damn it, like I wish I could still play, but uh, but and now like I'm to the point now where, you know, I'm watching guys play in the NFL who are younger than I am, so I'm like, yeah, the, the dream is over, Kev. Like it's time, it's time to move on, dude. Um, but yeah, I I, I feel I, I feel I feel you on that one. So where did the Life After Ball program uh, kind of evolve from? Like, where did the idea come from? And, you know, what are some of, like, the, the core foundations of the program? Well, it, it's, it's honestly an extension of what we've, what we've already been doing um, here. Um, Co- coach Morris, who was a head coach here before our current head football coach, Sonny Dykes, he, he created the position that I'm in now, the Director of External Affairs, and, and a little bit of, of that job description is what the life after ball is, is kind of evolved into now. And so Coach Dykes got here, and one of his missions and, and a thing that he was very successful with at, at, at Cal was they had this, had this, this um, program called Life After Ball, and that, that's one of the things he's passionate about um, because a, a lot of coaches in you know, this day and time, you know, Football players, their life after after they can serve them on the football field really isn't a high priority. And he's made that a priority. And basically, at the end of the day, the life after ball, if you sum it up, I mean, there's, it's multifaceted. But if you sum it up, it was it, it's our job is to prepare and enable um, young men for careers after football's over. And so when they leave SMU, we need to make sure that they're equipped with all the skills and tools necessary um, to be successful in whatever career field they choose, along with those skills and, 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 and uh, tools that we're talking about are connecting them with, with, with resources that we have here at SMU as far as people in, in, in different walks of corporate America, you know, different career fields that they can help um, network with and help them, you know, have a, have a chance to, uh, you know, to gain employment once they leave here. Okay, so can you kind of give some specific examples of like s- skills that you try to help uh, 
you know, teach the, the, your athletes and also some of those resource, like those networking resources that you were talking about? Like, is it guest speakers that come in or, you know, how do you guys approach it? Sure. It's multifaceted. You know, obviously we're going to have guest speakers come in um, from different walks of life, but ours is going to be different from, you know, a lot of schools are doing something similar. Ours, ours will be a little unique in the fact that we're going to prepare guys for everything that you could possibly need. Um, you know, things that some people take for granted. I did when I went to school because, you know, my, my father taught me how to tie a tie. Guys don't know how to tie a tie. From, from tying a tie to how to how to present yourselves in a great manner in an interview session, resume building, um, you know, etiquette, etiquette training, every single thing that you could possibly need in, in, the, in the workforce. And then get a step further where we're going to try to um, create networks with people that are in specific career fields. So let's say you're you're in you're in real estate. Um, the first thing we'll do in a couple of weeks, our first event is we're going to have um, people that are in real estate come and have dinner with with our players. And so if you're in, in, interested in real estate, you'll have dinner with a guy that's an SMU guy that's 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 involved in real estate. And so hopefully out of those those um, introductions, there'll be some organic. Uh, you know, relationships that evolve from there that hopefully grow into internship opportunities and also maybe job opportunities after they get out of school. And long term, you know, our, our, it'll be a year, a year, year round curriculum for freshmen when they leave. You know, after their freshman year, they'll they'll, they'll have a certain skill set, um, whether it be tying a tie, um, you know, etiquette training, or whatever it is for a freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior year. So that by the time they leave. They built up um, a toolbox of skills and, and 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 techniques that they can use as soon as they they stop playing football. Okay, great. Um, and this is a pretty new program. So, have any you know recent uh, graduates from the program gone through this, or is it still kind of like it's the the, the beginning phases? Yes. No. No one's gone from from you know freshman to sophomores. I, I got I got here. Um, I, I coached my entire life until this year. So I got here in, in July. And so what we've done from July to now is obviously we had to start from top to bottom because the seniors, you know, that they, they needed this, you know, m- most most urgently. Um, and so we got the seniors and we, tr- and we tracked them. I had them come in and meet with me individually. And I first of all, I want to know, you know, w- what, what part of the world would you like to live in? That's where we started. And then we, of course, go through their degree plan, you know, what they would like to do once they left. And then we started matching and pairing them up with SMU alumni, um, SMU boosters, people that have SMU ties and SMU loyalties that are in certain, you know, in, the, in their particular fields to try to get them matched up with them. First of all, just just to have a mentor, you know, in the, in that arena. And then in some of those cases, it turned into job opportunities after they left um, you know, after their playing career was over, which has been, has been cool. It's been pretty cool to see. Okay. Awesome. So what advice do you have for athletes, you know, who maybe aren't in a division one, you know, program and don't have access to kind of like the networking opportunities that you're providing your players, um, in terms of like, what advice do you have to them to help build their network? Like, is it use LinkedIn or, you know, how do you help these, these players boost their networks? Well, if 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 I if I were part of a program that didn't have this deal, and I was talking to a player that didn't have that, I, I would tell them to make sure that they understand that it's their brand, and it's up to them at the end of the day to to, to make the most out of their brand and their opportunities that they have. 
Um, a lot of things that we do right now are electronic, you know, emails, LinkedIn, like you like you said, but there's nothing like having, you know, personal connections and making personal relationships with people. And if, if, it's, if it's important enough to you to to brand yourself and to make sure that your career is where it want, where you want it to be, then it's, it's, you know, it's really basically up to the individual to go and, and put themselves in positions, whether it be go to career fairs, um, go to volunteer, go to ask um you know, for me, what I did in my career is, is I found four people that had character that, that I that I really liked, first of all, that were successful in, in, you know, for me, it was coaching, successful in whatever it is that you're trying to do and ask them to invest, invest, invest in you. And when I say invest in you, I ask a couple of people, you know, just for an hour, hour out of their, out of their, their time, out of their, out of their life. And one of those guys for me was Dirk Cutter, who ended up, you know, he's now the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So seven years ago. I got to know Coach Cutter through, you know, a mutual friend of mine. And I asked him because I just loved his character. I handled himself if you'd invest in my career. And up every year since then, up until, you know, last week, he, he's carved out an hour or two hours just to visit with me about my career goals, things he can help. You know, I ask him questions. We exchange book ideas. And I think that that's that's applicable in, in, in every career field that you may have. Just get out and, you know, at the end of the day, nobody's going to invest in you more than you invest in yourself. Okay, cool. That's a that's a good idea. Um, what speaking of books, like what books do you typically talk about uh, with with coach? Just different stuff. And, and like right now, the last we we talked two weeks ago at the, at the combine. Um, there's there's a biography that I'm reading on on USCS Grant. It has nothing to do with football. Most of our books have nothing to do with football. He's an avid reader, and and I I, I enjoy reading as well. Um, and so that was the, the last book we talked about was was the uh, was the biography on Ulysses S. Grant, who, you know, I, I knew nothing about until I went to a book signing about um, a month and a half ago, you know, with, with some SMU people and just totally fell in love with the way that he had moral courage, you know, in his leadership style. OK, so is it is it are you into like leadership type style books? Usually that's usually what I end up reading. Um, and, and for me, that, that that's it's, it's, a, it's a funny question. Because I look back at stuff that I, I've read, it some of them have to do with leadership, and you know I, I love reading books from coaches that I like. You know, there's there's a book by Mike Krzyzewski that I'm that I'm reading right now just because I like how he carries himself. You know, because I try to try to emulate things and people that have been successful but also have high character, and then they have, you know, you know their story is similar to mine. Cool. Yeah, I think it's important to read the. I'm into those leadership style books too, like uh, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, who's this uh, Navy SEAL. Um, I think back to that one quite frequently. I don't know if you've read that one, but it might be one to add to your 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 reading uh, well, book list. And this this is what's funny. That book, I, I I was lucky enough to have a guy that 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 did a lot of stuff for me, and he sent me. It's basically like Cliff Notes on audio. And when we get off, I'll email it to you. And they have about 25 books that, and that's one of them. That they do the synopsis and they, I mean, it's basically like reading a book. It's like the old school Cliff Notes on audio version. What's it called? Do you know off the top of your head? Um, like the it, program that uh, does those like Cliff Note audio books. I'm going to look it up right now. It is, um, it's a Philosopher's Notes. Okay. Philosopher's Notes. Interesting. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll link that up in the show notes too if people are interested. Um, okay. So... Are there any things in particular that uh, SMU or former SMU football players tend to struggle with most in their transitional life after football? Well, I, I don't know um, because the only only 
experience I can talk about is mine, and then the, the young men that I've seen from this year. I mean, because I've, I've coached for the last 18 years. Okay. But I'm assuming that they struggle with the same thing that, that every other Division One athlete struggles with, and that's the whole, what do I do now? You know, you've geared your whole life towards, you know, you're grinding, get, getting ready for a football season, um, the rigors of a football season. You know, after, you know, it, it, it's, it's just a cycle that repeats itself. And a lot of these young men have done it for, you know, 11 or 12 years of their life. So what what do you do now? What do you do with that, you know, that aggression, the adrenaline? You know, how do you channel that into the next part of your life? And it's 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 tougher for other guys than it is for 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 some, for some others, um, just based on their personalities. You know, I've seen guys that they transition right into. You know, for me, it's different because there were a lot of players on on our teams that they were glad to not play football anymore because I mean, the, the people that we were playing against, um, like I was telling you before in the Southwest Conference. You know, you got you got beat up pretty good, and so a lot of guys that I played with they they couldn't they couldn't wait for the last second to kick, tick off fast enough. <laughs> well, a lot of guys that that they they you know, yeah, there's a void missing in their life because that that was such a big part of them, and I think every every Division one football player struggles with that at some point because it's the end of something that you poured a great deal of your your life and and your your energy into into doing that that you no longer have anymore. Right. Do you guys like as a team uh, try to instill like any core principles, you know, into uh, the athletes that might translate to life after football? I'm just thinking back to like my Rutgers days and our um, kind of our mottos were like the family acronym, like forget about me, I love you, uh, right. anything like that at SMU. Um, the thing that Coach Morris and his staff did a good job of with our culture is, you know, accountability, work ethic, the integrity piece. Um, you know, all those things. And I, I literally just had a meeting about that today. I think that that's what makes, you know, athletes very, very viable in, 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 in corporate America, because the things that you look for being a part of a team, you know, being accountable, being dependable, you know, living with integrity, um, you know, sportsmanship, you know, you know, being, being good to other people, even though they're, they're, they're not, they're not on your team, people that you're playing against. Those things translate into life. Those things translate into being a good father and a good husband. You know, knowing that, that you've got to get up and you've got to go to work, you know, that's just what you do. Um, you know, you, you, you answer the bell. And those things, those, things are, those things translate into life. And I think that's why, especially football, is one of the best sports to, you know, instill life lessons. Because everything that you need to be successful as a, as a human being, you know, some way, shape, or form or fashion, you come across it, you know, in, in the life of, of a football player. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more, and I think football does definitely provide an out or an outlet for a lot of those uh, life lessons, um, which kind of leads me to my next question. Uh, there's a lot of like health and safety concerns, which I bring up a lot on the podcast, but it's all in the effort of making the game safer to play, for the mere fact that just to keep the athletes on the field, you know, healthy. You know, I wish I could have kept playing in college, and had I taken care of myself better, I probably could have played in college. Um, but I know, like, recently there's been a couple states that have proposed to ban youth tackle football and rule changes, new equipment. Like, what are your thoughts on some of the current health and safety concerns surrounding the game of football? Well, you know, it, it's an issue that's changing because what people understand is young people playing the game are getting bigger and faster. And so the more you do, your, your, the variables are, are constantly changing. Um, I think I think on every different level they've done different things to help you know make the game safer. 
um, you know, one of the biggest things is is at an early age, you know, those are the ones that really, really scare me because you have at sometimes you have coaches that that aren't aren't equipped. Um, you know, that that would be the number one thing, you know, that I that I would see to, to do a little different is make sure that the, the, the coaches that are coaching the young, young people are very, very trained on on proper technique and things to keep keep players safe. Because as the older you get, if you have good a good core of technique and fundamentals that can keep you out of some of the catastrophic injuries as far as, you know, everybody talks about seeing what you hit now. You know, all those things you cannot pour upon, you can't press upon enough at an early age. And, the, and Texas is different. You know, Texas, little, when, you, when you grow up, you start playing football, you play to win. And, and sometimes your technique and fundamentals, you know, the people, get, people lose sight of that. Um, at, at their win at, win at all cost mentality um, with, with young people. Do you think that uh, if young or if like youth football turned to flag football until fourteen, do you think that is a solution, or do you think that would make the problem worse? Since you think, do you think their technique would be poor when they have to tackle in high school? Kevin, it, it's one of those one of those six one half a dozen others because you know obviously you wouldn't get hurt, you know, actually in the game, but then when you're when you do start tackling, you, you you know you hadn't tackled before, you haven't been tackled before, and those are things that, that there's only one way to learn, and that's by doing. And so, I really don't know what the answer is because football is one of the best you know best games you know that that there ever has been, um, and and safety definitely is an issue. Um, and 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 I, I I hate you know I've been a part of being injured. Nothing to where it was life debilitating. Those are the ones that are that are tough to do because. You know, there's so many good things that come from football. It's hard to see the, tough, the you know, the, the, the life debilitating injuries that come out of it as well. Right. Yeah, I was witnessed witnessed one of those uh, myself uh, with Eric Legrand. Um, so, where do you see the future of football going? Do you think it's going to kind of stay the same, or do you think there's going to be significant rule changes going forward, or are the guys going to continue to be you know, bigger, faster, stronger, or are we going to implement a weight limit or like, where do you see the game going or where do you want to see the game to go? I, I don't know. And, and the tough thing about that is because there's so much money being tied into it on the top end, when I'm talking about the NFL and college um, <laughs> and the people that, that are, that are making the money, making the decisions on the money, the majority of them ne- never played the game. And then a lot of them also don't have children that will end up playing the game. And so their their perspective is a little bit different. Um, and, and anytime you get that much money involved in things, the actual purity and the safety, you know, and people can say what they want to, they're not going to take that money off the table. So I'm, I'm I'm afraid to see where the game may go. But hopefully, hopefully, hopefully they'll continue to to do you know innovations, you know, for equipment and, and safety and technique to where the game continue can, can continue to be the game that we've all grown up and grown up loving. Okay. Um... A few more questions before we uh, wrap up the interview here. Uh, do you think it's possible to play professionally uh, and still be prepared for a career and a life outside of your sport or football specifically? No question. And, and, and the thing that's that's helped is when you start peeling back the layers about, you know, where we are now, there are little things that, that started changing that. You know, the NCAA with the APR and making sure that, you know, players were graduating – that was one of the things that, that 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 the NCAA totally totally got right because now even if even if you think you're going to be a you know NFL player you still have to have to you know continue continue working towards your degree at, at an acceptable rate to be able to play college football. 
And so that's put a lot of guys in position to graduate and to graduate um, more so than there were years years before that legislation was, was in place. I mean, that schools are, are understanding that now players are, and their parents especially are looking for more than a football factory. And so when you go and you're getting recruited by an SMU or an Alabama or an Ohio State, parents are looking for what can you provide my young man besides football? Because every football field in Division One is 100, 100 yards long. And so what can you give me besides that football field that can help my son, particularly after he finishes? And so schools are putting in more, you know, putting more importance on preparing young men and offering young men opportunities um, to, to, to brand themselves, to build themselves um, off of the football field, prepare them for, for life after football. Great. Um, so I know you transitioned kind of away from coaching to your, your new role at SMU. Um, so how, what have you, how have you filled the void of kind of missing that adrenaline rush that you used to get every Saturday? Or do you still get it? Evan, I, I have not at all. Um, and this, and that's one of my current for real struggles. Um, I've, I've co- this is the first season I have not been on the football field um, in a coaching or playing playing um, capacity in shoot over over twenty almost twenty five years. And so this first this first last fall was was very tough for me. Um, you know, and so we're about to start spring practice. You know, in a couple days. So I'll go out and I'll watch practice for about as long as I can stand it, and then I'll go find something to do inside. So I'm still. Honestly, trying to trying to figure out that that part of life after ball for for myself. Um, it, it's cool to be around it, but there's definitely a void that. I mean, there's nothing that can fill it. And and, and pe- people, you know, I don't think I'm the only one in that boat. I mean, there, there's nothing that can fill that. You know, fill that rush. And unless you've had it, which you know, you have, unless unless you felt felt that that rush that goes through your body, that flushing that goes through your body, you can't understand how how you know, you know, there, there's no substitute for it. And I mean, there's really not. If I if I could bottle it up, I, I'd be very very rich. Yeah, very for rich. for sure. On it. Uh, did you play any other sports growing up? Well, I played every sport. You know, where I grew up, Wichita Falls, Texas. Whatever sport was in season, that's 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 what you you're going to go go to the pros in. So during football season, I was going to be a pro football player. During basketball season, I was going to be the best three point shooter in the world. Um, during baseball, I was going to break all the home run records. And so I played every every sport. I played basketball, baseball, and football growing up. Um, and I, I ran track until my, my eighth grade year in, in, in junior high, and I fell over the, over the hurdle, and that was the last time I ran track ever in my life. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, and I enjoyed every sport. You know, I don't think football was – you know, if I had to rank them, baseball was my best sport by far. Um, and, and, you know, you talk about regrets, frustration. SMU didn't have a baseball team, so I didn't get to – you know, continue my baseball playing career, but that was that was probably the sport that I was actually the, the best at. Um, you know, especially early on. Okay. Do you, when you guys recruit at SMU, do you guys look for multi-sport athletes? Um, we do because there, there are a lot of things you can find out about about young men that play different sports, particularly basketball. You know, if you want to go find out how, how athletic a kid is, you know, you go watch him play basketball because you can't you can't hide athleticism in basketball. Either you got it or you, or you don't. Um, the other thing is, is, is I, we like, we like, you know, everybody likes, but we like kids that can compete. Um, and when you go out and you're playing multiple sports, you're competing year round. Um, you know, a lot of people are, are trying to, trying to be sports specific and, and I don't really agree with that. And the numbers don't, 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 um, hold that to be true. You know, if you look at the top tier teams, they have a whole lot of players that played multiple sports on the, on their, on their team. Um, because it just says something about your, 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 your competitiveness, 
um, you know, your, your ability to interact with a bunch of different people in a team atmosphere, and then also guys that don't like sitting and watching, you know, outside of football season. Yeah, I would definitely one of those guys too. You got to got to be doing something, and yeah, no matter what it is, uh, if you're if you're competing. Um, so, last question: Where can people connect with you on social media, or if you want them to connect with you on social media? Um, obviously, my, my Twitter handle I think is SMUAQB. You, you probably know that better than you 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 can give them that. Okay. Um, Facebook it's uh it's just Ramon Flanagan. You know my name, and there's a picture of me and my two superstars on my Facebook page. So. The, the, good, the cool thing about my name is it's really, really easy because there's not a lot of Ramon Flanagan's in the world. Well, I'll link both of those up in the show notes. And, Ramon, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk about your career and overcoming your injuries and uh, the new Life After Ball uh, program that you're developing at SMU. And I can't think of anyone better to run that department for, for those guys. So um, thanks again. Thanks for having me. It was awesome.